like I said, if you're new or visiting, uh, hello, my name is Jerry. I'm the campus pastor here. Hello to those of you that are joining us online today. Um, I want you to think about the last time you started something new. Remember what it feels like to start something new? Maybe you were trying out for a team and you felt like the outsider or you're starting at a new gym. You're moving to a new city or a new neighborhood and you got to make new friendships and meet the new neighbors. Here's one that I think we can all relate to. Remember the first day of school? Maybe it was your first day of kindergarten, middle school, high school, or college. It doesn't matter how old or young you are. The first day of school is still the first day of school. There's that really weird mix of emotions of I'm kind of excited and I don't want anybody to know, but there's like all this unknown ahead of me and all this work that I know we're gonna have to do. Uh, maybe for some of you, you thought of like starting a new job. Starting a new job is exciting because you get to meet new people. You get to learn new things. There's new possibilities, new responsibilities. Starting something new is a chance to reinvent ourselves. It's a chance to use skills that we have or to develop some new skills along the way. Starting something new is really exciting, but it's also pretty overwhelming because it doesn't matter how old or young you are. It doesn't matter how smart or capable you might think you are. There's always that point in time when you realize, oh wait, I'm new and this is new. And the people are new, the processes, the procedures, it's all new. And, and it doesn't, kids, I hate to tell you this, it doesn't get any better when you get older because there's that point where you're like, I hope nobody knows. I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know what to do next. I'm not sure where to start. Well, if you have a Bible, I wanna invite you to turn to Acts chapter one. Today, we're kicking off a year long series in the gospel, or I'm sorry, in the book of Acts. And um, what we're gonna see is the moment in time when Jesus was gonna send his original followers out to accomplish something brand new. New in that no one's ever done this before. They didn't know what to expect and I'm sure they were excited. I'm sure they were overwhelmed. I'm sure they had all the questions and what we're gonna see is Jesus is gonna tell them, I've given you everything you need. I just need you to obey and I need you to go. So I mentioned this, we're starting a year long study through the book of Acts today. And if you're part of the Genesis family, we hope that you can join us in this journey. For the last few weeks, we have been handing out these reading plans and these journals. These are available for you at the Info Hub. We wanna invite you to follow along with us. We're reading about a chapter a week. You can take sermon notes here or journal prayers here, but we wanna invite you to join us on this journey as we read and study together. Last week, we launched a bunch of groups that are meeting in homes and on campus and in cafes to read and study through the book of Acts. And in a couple of weeks, we're going to go all in on the book of Acts. We're inviting Dr. Cindy Parker to join us on a Wednesday, on a Wednesday February the 15th at our Noblesville campus to teach an overview on the book of Acts. And what we're going to see in the book of Acts is how the early church was formed, how it functioned, and how it grew we're excited to have our middle school and high school students joining us on the same journey on Sunday night. So what is the book of Acts all about? Well, it's a sequel. It's kind of like a sequel to the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Acts was written by a man named Luke and uh, who also wrote the gospel of Luke. So we have two accounts from Luke in the New Testament. Luke was known for being an educated physician who at some point in his life began to follow Jesus and through the Holy Spirit's inspiration, he wrote two separate accounts to help us understand the life of Jesus and the history of the early church. Now, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all end at the same place. They end with Jesus dying and rising from the dead. And in the book of Acts, Luke picks up the story and tells us what happens after Jesus' resurrection. It covers a period of 30 years 
And it tells us how his followers began to live on mission and advance the message of the gospel. And today we're going to zero in specifically on Acts chapter one, where Jesus sends his guys out on this brand new mission, this brand new job. And the goal was for them to take the message of the gospel, the reality of everything that they had seen to the ends of the earth. Now, a lot of us have jobs that have a territory or a region. Can you imagine Jesus telling you, hey, your job is to take this to the ends of the earth. That's a little overwhelming. And think about what we know about these guys that were following Jesus. The gospels tell us that several of them were fishermen. They were blue collar workers. One of them basically worked for the IRS. And I'm guessing that no one liked that guy. One of them had a history as a terrorist. They had some pretty sketchy resumes. But in spite of their past, Jesus trained and equipped them. And today we're gonna see how he sent them out with a message that he wanted to spread from person to person and from home to home and from city to city so that eventually it could make its way to the ends of the earth. And 2,000 years later, it's still happening. It's still taking place. Now, I want you to imagine you were one of the original few and you heard Jesus say, it's time to go. I'm sending you to the ends of the earth. Do you think you'd have a couple questions? Do you think you might be a little overwhelmed? I know I would. I'd be like, I, I got questions. And also there's a lot I need to learn. And I think that's all fair. But Jesus says, no, no, no. It's time. I've given you everything you need. It's time for you to go. So let's jump into Acts chapter one, verse one, and see how it all takes shape. Luke begins by saying, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote, I wrote all about Jesus began to do and teach. Now, the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts both begin in the same way. They're addressed to a person named Theophilus. And there's a couple of theories about who Theophilus is. His name means friend of God or beloved of God which has led some to believe that Theophilus is a generic title for a group of people, early followers of Jesus, that Luke was writing to this early crowd of people about who Jesus is and now the history of the church. That's a decent theory. Personally, I like this second theory a little better. I believe that Theophilus was an actual person. I believe, I, I believe that, but it's likely that he was a political leader or he served somewhere as a Roman official. And Luke is writing him specifically to help him follow Jesus, to understand who Jesus is as God's promised Messiah. And then in the book of Acts to help him see this mission that Jesus gave to his early followers to carry out. But here's what we do know for sure. In the gospel of Luke, Luke says, I, I wanted to give you an orderly account so you can understand the details of his life and what happened after his resurrection. But there's another detail in Acts chapter one, verse one that I think we should pay attention to. I think this is pretty interesting. Luke says this, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Think about that, all that he began to do. So basically he said, in my first book, I told you how he died and rose from the dead, but I want you to pay attention, Theo, because he's just getting started. There's so much more to come, which means we, I think Luke is writing us into the story saying, you have a role to play. I want you to see what's happening and how you can jump on board. Look at verse three. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now in that one verse, Luke gives us like the high level overview of the things we need to know about Jesus. He talks about the fact that he suffered. When Luke says that Jesus suffered, he's referring to his death, but then he's quick to tell us that he rose from the dead. And, he's, and Luke tells us that Jesus gave his early followers many convincing proofs 
that he was alive. If you knew someone that died and they came back from the dead, how many convincing proofs would they need to give you that they were alive? For some reason, Luke felt that it was necessary to, to focus in on this detail. And it might be funny for us to be like, what's wrong with those guys? Why did it take them so long to understand that he was alive? But I think Luke is emphasizing something very important for Theophilus. It's the, the basis of our faith, and it's this. Our faith in Jesus is based on the historical reality that he actually rose from the dead. This is so important. Every other religious teacher, they live, they teach, and they die. Jesus lived, he taught, he rose, and he continues on. He's still alive, which means he's alive right now in bodily form somewhere. Just think about that. That's, that's why Luke is stressing this to Theophilus. The apostle Paul mentions a similar detail in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, after Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to first to Peter and then to the 12. And then at some point in time, he appeared to a crowd of 500 followers, Paul tells us. And this wasn't just a one-time thing. Luke tells us, if you look back at verse three, he says he appeared over a period of 40 days to them. Now, think of, if you're Jesus, think of all that you can get done in 40 days if you don't have to worry about dying. What can stop you? So how did he spend the 40 days? Well, Luke tells us. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke to them about the kingdom of God. Now, if you look at all, if you look at the gospels and you put them all together, what you realize is that Jesus spoke about the kingdom of God more than he spoke about anything else. And in, in Acts, Luke says, of all the things that Jesus talked on in that 40 days, the one thing that he specifically mentioned is that Jesus talked to them about the kingdom of God. So what is the kingdom of God? We were talking about this in our connection group this week. In fact, if you're meeting in a connection group, I wanna invite you to kind of have this conversation. What, what is the kingdom of God? What does this mean? N.T. Wright explains the kingdom of God as the intersection between what's happening right now in what is yet to come. The kingdom of God means that a new creation has begun to take shape. And that new creation began when Jesus rose from the dead. He was showing us he has come to change everything, everything. There's no limits for him. The kingdom of God means that people can be rescued from their sins and restored in their relationship with God through a relationship with Jesus. And in the book of Acts, we're gonna see Jesus teaching his followers how they would be tasked and equipped to make this new kingdom a reality. Look at verse four. On one occasion while he was eating with them, quick side note, you don't eat with people if you're not alive. They were hanging out, they were eating together. Jesus gave them this command, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John the Baptist baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So Jesus wants his followers to know that this new kingdom reality of advancing the message of the gospel, of building up this new society known as the church, it could only be lived out by the power of the Holy Spirit. And did you notice Jesus says, wait in Jerusalem? What was so special about Jerusalem? Well, if you look, I think it's in uh, verse 12 or 13, you learn that they're on the Mount of Olives having this conversation in Jerusalem is right over here. They're, they're literally looking down on the city of Jerusalem. It was the most sacred city in all of Judaism. It's where Jesus 
was the people proclaimed that he was going to be king, but that was also where he was arrested, crucified, where he was died, and where he was buried. So if you're a follower of Jesus, you're thinking, that's really not a safe place to go, Jesus. But he says, I want you to go and wait in Jerusalem. But he tells them why to wait. He says, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about, the Holy Spirit. Now, we talked a lot about the Holy Spirit last fall when we were studying through the Gospel of John. And in John 14, just a few hours before Jesus is arrested, he's teaching his disciples on the Holy Spirit. Look at what he says in John 14, 15. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commands. You'll do what I'm asking you to do. And I'll ask the Father and he'll give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Now that word another is a really important word. It means one just like the first. So Jesus is saying, I'm gonna ask my Father and he is gonna send you someone that's just like me. Who could be just like Jesus? Let that blow your mind for a second. And Jesus is saying, this is a good, this is a good thing. My father's gonna send another helper. His name is the Holy Spirit. And in John 14, Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit as an advocate. Now, what does an advocate do? An advocate is someone who walks alongside of us, someone that intercedes for us when we need help. But that's not all. Jesus continued to teach on the Holy Spirit. Look at the end of verse 17. He says, the world cannot accept him, referring to the Holy Spirit, because it neither sees him or knows him, but you do know him. Look at this, for he lives with you and he will be in you. Jesus teaches us a lot about the Holy Spirit. First of all, he teaches us that the Holy Spirit has a pronoun. He is a he, not an it, meaning he is personal. We can know him and he knows us. And through faith in Jesus, he, the Holy Spirit, lives with us and in us. So Jesus spent the majority of his ministry talking about the kingdom of God. And now he's linking the power of the Holy Spirit with the coming of the kingdom of God. And he's letting his followers know the Holy Spirit's going to be the power you need to live out this new role that I'm giving you to, to make the kingdom a reality. Do you think they had any questions? You think anybody was ever like, hey, Jesus, can we just, I got, I got a question for you. Because if I were there, I'd be asking all the questions. Well, they asked questions too. Look at verse six. They gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So all this talk of the kingdom had them thinking that Jesus was going to be an earthly king. And you know what? It's actually really good theology because all the Old Testament scriptures wrote and said, and all the Old Testament prophets predicted that one day a king would come from the family line of David to rule and reign on the throne in Jerusalem. And so in their minds, they're thinking of an earthly kingdom where Jesus would be a king who would overthrow the power of Rome and Israel would be a world superpower. I mean, essentially, if you put it in today's terms, what they're saying is, hey, Jesus, please tell me you're going to run in 2024. You'll be the most powerful guy. And if you're the most powerful guy, we're your friends. We get to sit in seats of power. And who doesn't want that? But I love Jesus's response back to them. Verse seven, he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the dates the father has set by his own authority. Jesus, I think he probably smiled and said, I love you guys so much. I appreciate your support. I appreciate your enthusiasm. Your theology is wonderful. You're asking all the right questions but it's not for you to know that yet. I just need you to do what I'm asking you to do. And he didn't deny their hope. He didn't deny that he was gonna be the long-awaited king, but what they didn't understand is that his throne 
wasn't going to be in Jerusalem. His throne was going to be in heaven. And they, are learn- they were learning, just like we're learning, that the kingdom of God isn't a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual, eternal kingdom that has come to turn things upside down on the earth, something that he is doing to make everything new. And then in verse eight, Jesus reminds them of the role that they're going to play in this new kingdom. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now that word power comes from the Greek word dunamis. It's the same word where we, that we get um, for the word dynamite. And dunamis can be translated as strength, forceful power, but more specifically, supernatural power that can perform miracles. So here's what Jesus is saying. The Holy Spirit gives Jesus' followers the power of God to advance the kingdom of God. Last Saturday, I had a, a project at our house that I, I needed to do, and I thought, this is gonna be so simple. We'll get this done real quick. My son, Braun, agreed to go to Home Depot with me. We went in, we were like on a mission, getting all of our stuff. We, we got it all in our hands. We get up to the front, and we're like, the record time. He's, my son was so excited. I went to pay, and I didn't have any purchasing power because I left my wallet at home. And I was not happy about it. And I started, my son's like, what are you going to do? I'm like, I want to pray that somebody from Genesis is here and they will let me pay them back later because I really don't want to come back. Now, here's the funny thing. I had the resources. They just weren't with me. They were over here, but I didn't have any power to buy them. And I think what Jesus is reminding his disciples is, I've got the resources. I just need you to wait until the time is right. Remember back in verse four, Jesus told them, wait in Jerusalem. He was telling them to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit because without the Holy Spirit, guess what? You and I, we can't do anything of any value for the kingdom. And maybe one of the reasons he wanted them to wait was to remind them, when you wait, you're dependent upon me. And that's how this is going to work. And what we're going to see throughout the book of Acts is the Holy Spirit is the key player who is empowering his followers then and followers now as well. In fact, I wanna invite you to do something as you're studying through the book of Acts. I wanna invite you to circle or to mark every time the Holy Spirit is mentioned. By my count, somewhere around 56 times in 28 chapters. And every time he's mentioned, something powerful happens shortly thereafter. And here's what's amazing about the Holy Spirit. We're talking about the same Holy Spirit that Jesus relied on in his humanity. If you go back and look at verses uh, two or three, it says that Jesus taught his, after his resurrection, Jesus taught his disciples through the power of the Holy Spirit. After his resurrection, that's how dependent he was on the Holy Spirit. This is the same spirit that rose Jesus, that brought Jesus back to life from the dead. And here's the good news. It's the same spirit that lives inside of us when our faith is in Jesus. That's the kind of power he wants us to have. And if you look back at verse eight, we learn how Jesus wants his followers to use this power. Very specifically, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and, pay attention to the word and, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. The word and is so important because it links the power of the Holy Spirit with the purpose of being a witness for Jesus. The word witness or this theme of a, being a witness is mentioned several, on several occasions in Acts 1, 2, 3, 10, and 22. What does a witness do? A witness gives testimony 
based on what they have seen and experienced. Now, remember in verse three, Luke said that Jesus gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. You know why I think Luke told us that? Because they were gonna need all those convincing proofs to live out their testimony for Jesus. They can say, I, I, I know him, I saw him, I talked to him, he taught me, he loved me. And think of what, think of what they'd seen Jesus do. He lived a perfect, sinless life, completely devoted to his heavenly father. He loved people in a way that was perfect, regardless of who they were or what their past was. They had seen and experienced Jesus's love for themselves. They had witnessed his miracles. They had witnessed his death and his burial, and they had witnessed his resurrection. That was all part of their testimony. And they knew now without a shadow of a doubt, he's God's promised Messiah. That is the testimony that they were launching out to share. So it brings up a really good question. What's your testimony? What have you seen him do in your life that's undeniable? No one can take it away from you. Because it would be easy for us to say, well, they got to see him in person. Yes, but I don't, I don't know that you can be a follower of Jesus without having a, a moment where you can say, I, you can do whatever you want to me, but you can't take away my experience with Jesus. I know without a shadow of a doubt, he's alive. So I've been asking people this question this week. If you're in a connection group, or even if you're not, ask some people this question this week. What have you seen Jesus do in your life that lets you know he's alive and he is with you? One of the stories uh, that I got this week is from some good friends here at Genesis, Clay and Caitlin Lange Bartles. If you know them, you know that their daughter, Peyton, was born a couple of years ago with a serious heart defect. And I remember visiting Peyton shortly after she was born. You can't imagine more leads and wires going into a baby this big. You can't imagine how scared, how overwhelmed they were. And this is what Clay said. We went through what we went through and we would not want to do any of it again, but we missed the closeness we had with the Lord during that not so peaceful time. And he would say, my wife was overwhelmed with anxiety and God showed up and gave us peace that no one can take away from us. That's their testimony. Now your testimony doesn't have to be that dramatic, but it does mean that we recall on the things and the times where we know that God has moved and we say to people, I'm just telling you, this is what he's done for me. Uh, Kent Hughes says that living as a witness for Christ means that we share a really simple message. And the message is that Jesus has come to live as God in the flesh. He died to pay for the sins of the world. He rose from the dead. He's being exalted in heaven right now. And he's called on us to believe in him for the forgiveness of our sins. So as you live for a witness, you're living that message out. You speak it, but it's also important that we model it so that the people around us can see, oh, they really believe that this is true. They're not just checking a box and going to church. And you know, honestly, sharing the message of Jesus is not popular. But it wasn't popular for Jesus' followers either. They were living in a culture that was really hostile to them. And here's the good news. He promised to give them and us the power we need to take the, the message of the gospel with us in the words we say and in the way that we live. So, Let's hit pause and let's think about everything that we've seen Jesus do for his disciples just in Acts chapter one through eight so far. He gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. 
He ate with them and hung out with them. He taught them about the kingdom of God. He promised to send the power of the Holy Spirit. And now he's called them to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. And according to Luke, the time had finally come for them to put all of that into practice. Look at verse nine. After he said this, Jesus was taken up before their eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. He had spent three and a half years training and equipping and loving and patiently walking with them. And now it was time for them to finally go and do the thing that he had trained and equipped them to do. It was day one on the job. And in true Jesus fashion, he left them in a way that would blow their minds. It would become part of their testimony. It left them standing there in awe. Luke tells us that he was taken up to heaven and a cloud hid him from their sight. Now, let's just, can you imagine of all the things you've seen Jesus do, he raised the guy from the dead and you're like, wow. And now he's floating away into heaven. How do you compute that in your human brain? It just does not happen every day, right? Now Luke mentions, actually, before I tell you what Luke says, this event is called the ascension because Jesus is ascended, he's taken into heaven. Luke mentions a cloud that hid Jesus from their sight. It's interesting to note, before I tell you this, I want you to think how many times in scripture do you see a cloud doing something specific or different than a normal cloud in the sky? All throughout scripture, we see a cloud used to represent the manifestation of the glory of God on the earth. In Exodus 19, when God comes to give the 10 commandments to Moses and the Israelites, there is a massive cloud that rests on the top of Mount Sinai. Throughout the wandering in the wilderness, we learn that God led the Israelites by a pillar of fire at night and a cloud during the day. In 2 Chronicles, God's presence filled the temple with the cloud. In Luke chapter nine, Jesus reveals his glory to three of his closest followers. And there was a cloud that surrounded him as he was transfigured before their eyes. When Luke tells us that a cloud hid Jesus from their sight, I think he's telling us Jesus was being taken into the presence of God. And several other New Testament writers tell us he was taken and he went into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God where his throne was. Now, at first glance, we look at this and think, well, it must be nice. Jesus is just like, okay, guys, I've done my part. I'm out of here. This is some dirty work. But I love that Tim Keller says, when Jesus ascended, that was his way of saying, I'm not done. We're just getting started. Because what happens next in Acts chapter two is we see the power of the Holy Spirit come upon his followers and they begin to live with the presence and the power of God in ways that no one could have ever imagined. But look at verse 10. His disciples were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Luke does not tell us that these guys are angels. They had to be angels. They just seemed to appear out of nowhere. They're wearing white clothes. Verse 11, men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back the same way you have seen him go into heaven. I mean, essentially they say, guys, you don't need to worry. He promised to never leave you or forsake you. He's not leaving you. He'll be back. But they do say, don't just stand there. And they seem to imply it's time to go. It's time to do the thing that he has prepared you to do. And again, next week, 
In the book of Acts, we're gonna, in Acts chapter two, we're gonna see what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. But here's a little detail for you. They had to wait. There was a 10 day waiting period. Can you imagine waiting for 10 days after everything that you've seen? How did they wait? What did they do? Well, here's the good news for us. They had to wait, but we do not. This happened almost 2000 years ago. The Holy Spirit has come and he has been empowering normal, ordinary people like me and you to live out our testimony, to speak and to model the message of the gospel for people around us so that people far from God can be brought to God. I said this earlier, but I wanna say it again. The kingdom of God is the intersection between what's happening right now and what is still to come. Jesus will return one day and his kingdom will be completed. But in the meantime, the reality of his death and resurrection means that people that are far from God can be rescued from their sins and restored in a relationship to God through Christ. And so if you've put your faith in him, there's nothing else left other than obedience and the power of the Holy Spirit. He's given us everything we need. Tim Keller says, if you're bored in your faith, you have forgotten the power of the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus because we've been called on mission. We've been equipped and it's time to go. But I wanna take, take a moment and talk to those of you, maybe you haven't put your faith in Jesus or you've been standing on the fence of faith and you're trying to make a, a decision. I want you to know it's not too late to follow him yet but there's gonna be a day that he's going to return. And when he returns or when you die and leave this earth, you've used up all your time. I remember when my sweet mother-in-law asked me a question about what I believed about the return of Jesus. I had never thought of it. But when she asked me, all of a sudden I realized, wait a minute, if he's coming back, I've not made a decision to follow him. Like if he came back right now, I'm, I'm separated from him. And it led me to follow him. And so if you're not yet following him, I wanna tell you to drive really carefully because your, your eternity hangs in the balance. Jesus says, I want to rescue you from your sins. I rose from the dead to prove that I have the power to give you a brand new life. I'm gonna empower you with my spirit and I wanna use your broken life, the overwhelming circumstances of your life for my kingdom. And he says, just trust me in faith and all of those things are yours. I want to use you. Now, as we end, we're gonna end in a way that we've done the last couple of weeks. We've been praying this prayer that we call our everyday prayer. It's on our reading plan. I wanna encourage you to pray it throughout the course of the week, but I wanna invite you to pray this prayer with me right now in light of everything we've just learned in the book of Acts. Would you pray this out loud with me? Father in heaven, thank you for saving me. I want you to do for others what you've done for me. Use me today to help others know you. Father, that is our prayer. It's undeniable in Acts chapter one that you were sending your disciples into the world to make disciples, to teach people how to follow you. And for those of us that are, whose faith rests in you, you have equipped us, you've empowered us to go as moms and dads, as husbands and wives, to share and model your love, to verbalize, the message of your grace and the gospel to model for people that are far from you what it looks like to live a life of faith. Holy Spirit, will you please use us today to make the kingdom a reality? We can't do it apart from you. There's nothing else worth giving our time to. 
would you help us to leave here knowing that we're empowered, feeling your presence and going and trusting that you're gonna use our lives to bring glory to Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.